It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. We are nothing, and we come from nothing, but that nothing is everything. If you feed it with love, that is why we will triumph. That's poet Juan Felipe Herrera reading from his work Border Bus. Herrera is the son of migrant farm workers and in 2015 became America's first Latino poet laureate. In today's episode, poetry will take you on a journey from a bus at the border of the United States and Mexico to New Haven, Connecticut, where a group of Africans were jailed in the 19th century. The unifying theme is how art can tackle some of the most difficult social justice questions we've faced in history and today. We'll hear from Herrera first, but later in the show, listen for readings and discussion from Elizabeth Alexander and Claudia Rankine. Alexander is a professor of poetry at Yale and read a poem at the inauguration of President Obama in 2009. Rankine is an accomplished poet and playwright. She teaches at Pomona College. Here's Herrera speaking on stage in Aspen for Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute. All right, folks. Uh, border bus. You know, in California, you know, and my own experience and my parents' experience and all of our experiences, you know, there really are no boundaries to our experiences. Uh, people are getting, you know, thrown in buses and hauled into detention centers. And in this case, the bus couldn't even make it to the detention center because people didn't want that bus to be in their city. So I, I, I knew there were women in that bus. During that time, there were a lot of children um, coming to the United States from Central America by themselves. Unimaginable journey. Another incredible, impossible thing, and that's the times, those are the times we're living in now. The times of the impossible, which are possible, but these are painful impossibilities. So this is called Border Bus, and um, I wanted to uh, see if I could bring up the voices of, of, the, of two women in that bus. And one speaks in Spanish, which I've also translated in here. And the other one's kind of like my Aunt Lila. I'm kind of, you know, tough. Tough. I always wore black. Always correcting me. Siéntate, Juanito, siéntate. <laughs> Sit down. Stop moving all over the place. Oh, my dear. Sit down right now. Siéntate. And my mother was the opposite. Ay, Juanito. You know. <laughs> That's okay, then, you know, have both. Uh, border bus, border bus. ¿A dónde vamos? Where are we going? Speak in English or the guard is going to come. ¿A dónde vamos? Where are we going? Speak in English or the guard is going to get us, hermana. ¿Pero qué hicimos? But what did we do? Speak in English. Come on. No más unas pocas palabras. I, I just know a few words. You better figure it out, hermana. The guard is right there. See the bus driver? Right? Tantos días y ni sabíamos para dónde íbamos. So many days and we didn't even know where we were headed. I know where we're going. Where we always go. To some detention center, to some fingerprinting hall or cube, some warehouse, warehouse after warehouse. Pero, pero... Ya nos investigaron, ya cruzamos y nos cacharon. Los federales del bordo, ¿qué más quieren? 
But they already questioned us. They already we already crossed over. They already grabbed us at the border. But the border patrol. But what more do they want? We're on the bus now. That is all. ¿A dónde vamos? Te digo, salí desde Honduras. No hemos comido nada. ¿Y, y, y dónde vamos a, a, a dormir? Where are we going? I'm telling you, I, I came from Honduras. We, we haven't eaten anything. And where are we going to sleep? I don't want to talk about it, okay? Just tell them that you came from nowhere. I came from nowhere. And we crossed the border from nowhere. And now you and me and everybody else here is on a bus to nowhere. Got it? Pero, pero por eso nos venimos, para salir de la nada. But that's why we came, to leave all that nothing behind. When the bus stops, there will be more nothing. We're here, hermana. Y esas gentes, ¿quién son? No quieren que siga el camión. No quieren que sigamos. Están bloqueando el bus. ¿A dónde vamos ahora? Y esas gentes... Those people there, who are they? They don't want the bus to keep going. They don't want us to keep going. Now they're blocking the bus. So, where do we go? What? He tardado 47 días para llegar acá. No fue fácil, hermana. 45 días desde Honduras con los coyotes, los que se, bueno, ya sabes, los que les hicieron a las chicas, uh, ahí mero enfrente de todos nosotros, pero... ¿Qué íbamos a hacer? Y los trenes, los trenes. ¿Cómo diré, hermana? Cientos de nosotros, como gallinas, como topos en jaulas y verduras, pudriéndose en los trenes de miles. ¿Me oyes? De miles, y se resbalaban de los techos y los desiertos. De Arizona, de Texas, sed y hambre. Sed y hambre, dos cosas, sed y hambre, día tras día, hermana. Y ahora aquí, en este camión, y quién sabe a dónde vamos, hermana. Fíjate, vengo desde Brownsville, donde nos amarraron. Y ahora, en California. Pero todavía no entramos y todavía el bordo está por delante. It took me 47 days to get here. It wasn't easy, hermana. 45 days from Honduras with the coyotes, the ones that, well, you, you, you know what they did to las chicas right there in front of us. So, 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 so what were we supposed to do? And the trains, the trains. I'm going to tell you, hermana, hundreds of us, like chickens, like gophers, like gophers in cages and vegetables, Rotting on trains and thousands, you hear me? Thousands, and they slid from the rooftops in the deserts of Arizona and Texas. Thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger. Two things, thirst and hunger, day after day, hermana. And now here on the bus. Now who knows where we're going, hermana? Listen, I come from Brownsville, where they tied us up. And now in California, but still we're not inside and still the border lies ahead of us. I told you to speak in English, okay? Even un poquito. The guard is going to think we are doing something. The people are screaming outside. They want to push the bus back. 
Pero para dónde le damos, hermana. Por eso me vine. Le quebraron las piernas a mi padre. Las pandillas mataron a mi hijo. Solo quiero que estemos juntos. Tantos años, hermana, separados. But where do we go, hermana? That's why I came here. They broke my father's legs. Gangs killed my son. My son. I just want us to be together. So many years, hermana, pulled apart. What? Mi madre me dijo que lo más importante es la libertad y la bondad y las buenas acciones con el prójimo. My mother told me that the most important thing is freedom and kindness and doing good for others. What are you talking about? I told you to be quiet. La libertad viene desde muy adentro. Ahí reside todo el dolor de todo el mundo. El momento que nos purguemos de ese dolor de nuestras entrañas, seremos libres. Y en ese momento tenemos que llenarnos de todo el dolor de todos los seres para liberarlos a ellos mismos. Freedom comes from way deep inside. All the pain of the world lives there. The second we cleanse that pain from our guts, we shall be free. And in that moment, we have to fill ourselves up with all the pain of all beings to free them, all of them. But God is coming. Well, now what? Maybe they'll take us to another detention center. We'll eat. We'll have a floor, a blanket, toilets, water, and each other for a while. No somos nada. Y venimos de la nada. Pero esa nada lo es todo si la nutres de amor. Y por eso venceremos. We are nothing. And we come from nothing. But that nothing is everything. If you feed it with love, that is why we will triumph. We are everything, hermana. Because we come from everything. So that's, that's that. That's that. that was U.S. Poet Laureate Juan Felipe Herrera reading Border Bus in Aspen in January 2016. Next, we take you to the Ideas Festival in the summer of 2015. Then, the news of the day included the Charleston Church shooting and protests in Ferguson, Missouri. Poets Elizabeth Alexander and Claudia Rankine sit down with Eric Liu. Lou directs the Citizenship and American Identity Program at the Aspen Institute. With a country at war with itself, the speakers discuss how poetry can dispel alienation and give rise to a new level of citizenship. Here we sit uh, after a, uh, a pretty intense couple of weeks in America. Um, and a couple of weeks that have been filled with pain and alienation and bloodshed. A couple of weeks that have been f filled with redemption and joy and uh, uh, relief, uh, and, uh, and what's been remarkable about all of what's happened, uh, whether it's the tragedy in Charleston in the aftermath, the uh, arguments about the Confederacy and its flag, um, the Supreme Court decision on marriage equality, um, all throughout, you touch each one of these touchstones of the last couple of weeks, and you realize the role that art has had. Art, imagery, poetry, the word, and the symbols that we use, how in your work, in the way that you work, do you make sense of a moment like the one that we're going through right now? 
I think that um, one of the things that's very important in writing poetry, one of the things that, that I think sometimes separates a successful poem from a less successful poem um, is that on the one hand you're making patterns, you're creating felicity, you're trying to make a certain kind of harmony, you're trying to make a certain kind of music. But I think also the will to tidy up when you see that imposed on a poem, when you see you know, a couplet that shuts things down too neatly, that doesn't remind us that there is irresolution in the world as well, and that a work of art can open questions even as it gives us the sort of feeling of aesthetic satisfaction and fullness. Holding contradiction, I think, is something that poetry can actually do very, very well, and that perhaps is what marks poetry that is very, very dynamic. I think of what poets are supposed to do is go around with antenna, you know, go around like a radio tower, pick up the signals, take it in, and not take it in in any form of language that exists already. Take in the sounds, take in the shapes, take in the viscera, take in the phrases, and then make something of it. That's, that's sort of what we, what we do. Um, and to add to that um, for for myself, and I think in Claudia's work as well, having an understanding of history. Uh, you know, I have often turned to historical moments because I think that the only way that we can understand the horror of right now is historically, even if we haven't gotten it all the way figured out. Um, I think what we see in Citizen is a very, very powerful history of the present tense, understanding the historicity of this moment with all that is brought to it. So I, I think some kind of understanding of, of, of history um, is something that, that poets can bring to bear on the present. I'm going to come back to that in a, in a moment and just note that uh, among the uh, collections of uh, poetry that Elizabeth has published, uh, one which I guess is a kind of a compilation, Crave Radiance, um, is itself one I would commend to you precisely because it cuts across history and shifts in time and, uh, uh, and juxtaposes past and in present in, in ways that illuminate, that, that illuminate both. Um, but we'll come back to that. Uh, Claudia, in terms of how do you make sense of a moment like this? Well, I don't. I don't make sense of it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that as it's happening, I am watching. I'm listening. I'm distressed. I'm pissed off. I'm, I'm many things. And, um, and I rarely ever write in this state because the time is so alive to it, and alive in, in, in all the emotions that are available to it. I was thinking, as Elizabeth was speaking, that um, her memoir is about mourning. And, and one of the things that you do in that book is to move through the various ways in which one moves through mourning. And, and I think that is what we as a country have been doing in the last few weeks and will continue to do. You know, I think that for me, poetry and the reason why I will be a poet for the rest of my life, it's the sacred space for emotions. And even though the history comes in, the facts come in, the moments are interrogated, it is a special place where emotions also stand equal to facts. And in, in the realm of the poem, we can feel our full feelings. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to um, present as nonpartisan or um, 
distant in any way. And so that, I, I feel like that for me is why the lyric and the poem becomes the scene to interrogate what is our lives. I wonder um, what you think about this, if, if, if poetry is um, also a space of return or a space to which we return. And that, you know, I think that sometimes maybe we read a poem once and we move on. But I think the invitation is come back to it. How does it shift? What didn't I see the first time? And I think that that practice um, is a practice that we, we don't have as much of as we need in thinking our way through these very, very, very fraught Do you mean this moments. both as writer and reader, or are you speaking? Um, I, mean, I mean this, no, I think that when any of us, myself included, as you know, when I come to a poem, I feel that in a good poem, I'm going to come back to it. And I'm going to turn it over, and I'm going to see, you know, and I'm going to contemplate. And I, it might be useful to me in one way today and in another way in a week. That practice of return and contemplation is something that I think um, there's not enough of in um, the kind of mainstream examination of moments of trauma. Hmm. You know, oh, people said they forgive Dylan Roof, on we go. You know, well, no, 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 we got to come back to that. What is that moment? What does that mean? How do we sit with that? How do we turn it over? And I think that is a poetry reading practice. The, the book that of Elizabeth's that Claudia mentioned um, is a book not of poetry but of prose, a memoir recently published called The Light of the World. Um, when Claudia said it was a book of mourning, uh, it, it is a book uh, reckoning with the sudden death of, uh, of your husband. And I guess this notion of mourning and trauma that our country is in right now and the, that impulse to want to too quickly tidy up, as you said, right? What have you learned in the course of doing this exquisite work of writing and sharing your experience of, uh, of mourning and grief uh, about how you now try to live as a citizen when we as a culture are having such a bad time, doing such a bad job of um, facing uh, true mourning, true truth and reconciliation. Hmm. One of the things I've learned in writing about love uh, and writing about love that starts with two people and, you know, we all love to be in love and we love that feeling and sometimes that feeling leads to more and that is a beautiful thing. So it is a love story, but I think that love between two people, if it does not radiate outward, if it doesn't radiate outward to kids, not to kids, but to community and out and out and out. My husband was a painter. We were both making art that we hoped would radiate out and out and out. It's a hoarded resource. If, if we look at love as, as, as being satisfied in its, you know, inaction between two people. So, I mean, that sort of seems like a roundabout way, but that's one of the deepest things, actually, that I've learned about citizenship, mm -hmm. um, is that, you know, anything that is well-written can be exemplary to others, right? I mean, you know, good writing, you know, I read it, I'm moved, I, I connect to it. But a love story and the measure of that loss has to have a wider uh, meaning, and that the way to give it that meaning, I think, is to start exactly with what you know. So that only begins to get to your question, but that's the kind of what I learned. Yeah, and, um, and we'll, we'll return to it in different ways. Um, you know, Claudia, when you and I last saw each other, um, we had a conversation, a public conversation that uh, had followed um, a similar discussion on stage uh, with some young people from Ferguson, uh, activists who uh, had been really engaged in organizing, really engaged in the aftermath of 
uh, of all that's gone on there, of uh, activating their uh, peers and their neighbors. What struck me um, as Elizabeth was talking, actually both of you talked, about seeing patterns, about having these antenna, um, about being in a space that actually where emotion uh, is of equal currency value as facts. Mm -hmm. Actually, all those three things are true of politics, too. Politics is about making sense of patterns of the chaos and telling a story about you know, what it is that's actually happening. Good politicians have that antenna, right? Um, and I don't mean just elected officials. I mean good organizers even, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're listening to where people are around them. Uh, and certainly that space of emotion uh, equal or trumping uh, fact. When you think about how others today, particularly younger people, are hearing and reading and experiencing your work, does it make you want to add anything, like kind of go back and say, oh, okay, I wrote this before what's happened here in you know, Ferguson or Charleston, whatever. If I could rewrite that, I would change it this way. I would retune it this way because my antenna are picking up something different. Or, um, or would you just let it sit and let people you know, interpret it as the light will allow them to in that time? I feel if you do what you're doing in a way that speaks to the core of the thing and not the thing itself, it will expand and contract as it needs to. Um, so my hope is that Citizen is a breathing text and that it doesn't need to be updated in the sense of the specific moments because they um, are moving out of the same structural dynamics in terms of um, the ingrained racism in this country. And whether it's Charleston today or Michael Brown last summer or Emmett Till, the dynamics are similar. And the, and the um, response again and again is one of, it was one of grief, one of mourning, one of um, a call to action. Um, I, I love what Black Lives Matter has done in terms of asking people to come out on the streets without an agenda, without saying we need to change this. or we, You just need to come out and say this is wrong. And in that sense, I feel like that movement is also a fluid and breathing movement um, started by those three um, women activists. So I guess the answer to your question is no. Mm -hmm. I don't think I, I, I need to go back in. I need to do something else, yes. Mm -hmm. um, yesterday I was at the um, Antigone session. As he was talking about the dynamics of Antigone, I was thinking, you know, somebody needs to, like me maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> somebody needs to write about Ismene and how perhaps the desire not to interfere is its own kind of activism. That let, let the body stay out there. Let everybody have to negotiate the dead body. Let that be part of the day-to-day, -day, rather than Antigone's move to have it buried. So it's that, you know, so those kinds of things come Even up. what you just said, somebody needs to, like me maybe, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, is such a great uh, distillation of what Damien's trying to do with this program in, in general about the notion of the citizen artist. Uh, the citizen as artist, the artist as citizen, uh, and the sense that uh, 
maybe nobody else is actually going to try to uh, either make sense or describe the nonsense of, uh, of this moment, and maybe I ought to, right? Um, why not me, uh, to put it another way? Mm -hmm. uh, when we uh, had a kind of preparatory uh, phone call a couple weeks back, uh, we were um, playing a little bit with the uh, title that we've been given for this session, and particularly the word alienation, uh, thinking about how much pain there is uh, around dynamics of race in this country. It, it takes maybe a, a moment of empathetic imagination, but Dylan Roof was clearly someone feeling the pain and absorbing in his own way the pain of what he'd been told he was supposed to be. Somewhere along, he picked up a notion of what he was supposed to be and how that was to be defined as against what other people he thought were. This notion of alienation, um, I guess I would love to hear both of you explore it a bit more. When we had that phone call, uh, you know, so much if you haven't read Citizen yet, um, it is this mesmerizing, textured depiction of an accumulation of small moments of alienation, sometimes punctuated by large moments of alienation and racism, but just this is the steady, dripping accumulation. The poems uh, uh, that, that I've read of Elizabeth's in Crave Radiance uh, are less about the alienation per se, perhaps, and more the word that you used was resilience. And uh, there is a similarly long tradition uh, in the United States when we think about uh, our failures to reckon with race, a similarly long tradition of resilience that sits right alongside uh, the long experience of, of alienation. So what are your thoughts now on alienation, race and justice, and, and the ways that you think about even that? that idea? Well, um, I think, you know, an important rubric, um, but I think I don't understand, I wish I could understand Dylan Roof as alienated. I understand him as mentally ill and as a trained racist killer. That's not alienated. He's not the only one. He has ideology. He has learning. It's perverse learning. You know, you read, you will, he read the slave narratives. What? Mm. You know, which proved to us that, that slavery actually wasn't so... I mean, it's, it's cuckoo, mm -hmm. right? But it is a syllabus. This man had a syllabus that he used, that, and he did not make it by himself. Mm. Other people have that syllabus. How do we contend with that? Who took his picture mm -hmm. with the f flags and the this and with the guns and the... Mm -hmm. What about the people he told about what he was in community? So I think that's something that's much more terrifying to contend with. I think um, that um, to the question of alienation and thinking about black people and black tradition, which we talked about, um, and that's where um, we came to this. You know, my other thought was, well, you know, if not, if if African Americans were alienated across history, even in a country that hasn't always made space for us we would not actually be here, right? I mean, that to me, the more powerful story, and, and as we've been talking about, not the tidy story, but the, but the powerful story is, what is that resilience that ties people together? And again, we were, you know, right, it was Charleston, you know, we were right in it when we mm -hmm. spoke on the phone. And I was looking at all of those images in the media of black men holding each other and weeping and thinking, how does that press against the narrative we're fed every day about black men, right? Do we ever, if we see black people mourning, we see black women falling out and doing the bodily work of mourning, but do we see black men in, the, in that space? 
So, I mean, those moments, actually, those visual moments of people coming together and mourning in a community, circles of black men really, really stuck with me and felt to me like um, they, they gave us something to think about looking back to today. Mm -hmm. Well, I, when Elizabeth said that, I thought, that is exactly right. Um, and it made me think, in, in Citizen, I wrote about Daryl Dedman, who was also a white um, guy from the South, who, with a group of friends, went driving around looking for black people to beat up and kill. And you might remember he, um, he was imprisoned because the, um, James Craig Anderson stepped out of his hotel early in the morning. They, the two cars drove up. They beat him. He's crawling on the asphalt. And Deadman in his pickup truck drives over him. And, um, and then they all meet at the McDonald's. And while he's at the McDonald's, everything is being recorded. And he says, I ran that nigger over. And so that's why he was initially taken by the police. Um, so for me, Deadman is not that far from Roof. They're, you know, they're, they are being brought up by families <coughs> who are nurturing these ideas inside of them. And somehow, I'm, you know, there's a lot of talk about devastation in the, in the black community. But I'm wondering about, I mean, these, these guys, they're 18, 17, 19. Mm -hmm. What and who do they think they're achieving by killing black people? What kind of alienation is inside them that they feel that to actualize themselves, they need to track down black folks and shoot a church full or run them over with their car? What is that? And so in, I, you know, I was thinking a lot that actually we need to be a little bit um, concerned. This, this idea that you just label them as insane. I mean, you know, Roof was one guy. In, in Deadman's case, there were two carloads. Not all of them were insane. And, and similarly, they had tracked these people. So if it's a insane, it's a, it's a very, you know, um, disciplined insanity. The other thing to think about is that when Obama was elected, in Springfield, Massachusetts, the black church there was burned to the ground. So not in the South, in Springfield, Massachusetts, as an answer to our black president. Three men, all of them indicted. Again, it's the culture showing that this is the response to black bodies, take away the sacred spaces, and kill them. It's our culture. We're building this. I know that one of the exercises you asked this, the uh, young poets to do uh, was to invite them to write as if white, to write from a white perspective. What is it that you could imagine that kind of exercise, not just with a group of already uh, you know, expert crafters of, of language, but with just 
everyday citizens. Um, what an invitation like that to um, flip perspective uh, uh, would would be intended to do. Well, I you know one of the things that's interesting to me, sort of just blindly, do you remember everybody sat in a segregated way? But that sense that if we are not conscious about how we construct societies around race, then we will construct what was unconsciously constructed. And also the other thing is that often it's seen as a black problem. It's a black problem, it's a black burden, it's a black grief, it's a black death. But it wouldn't be happening without white bodies in the room. So what, what is that whiteness? What is white privilege? What is white um, anxiety? What is white defensiveness? What is white discomfort? On, you know, what, what is all of that? Perhaps if we began to talk about those things and think about those things, then two bodies would arrive. And only when we have the two bodies together can we move forward. So I think that sense of moving it over into a problem that belongs to the black community erases white culpability. And consequently, white people can be sad about what happened in Charleston and then go back to their lives. If they were able to hold these problems as American problems, then they couldn't move away from them in the way that black bodies can't move away from them. So I think, I think we need to begin to shift the gaze. We need to think about Dylan Roof. What's up? What up with Dylan Roof? Who made that? How, you know, his life is over, as it should be, because of what he did. But, but before, the minute before he did what he did, who could have stepped in, as you, as you said? Because that's a life, too. And so I just think we need to start looking at both sides of this thing. I mean, so... Um truthfully and powerfully put, and I think that also, without sidetracking us to a conversation about Rachel Dolezal, and this is about what is whiteness, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, it is a profound form of white privilege to try to borrow black authenticity. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's white privilege right there. And what I think, I think we didn't get to talk about that I find so compelling and so important is what about white allies? Right. What about the white woman who's a white woman who works at the NAACP? What about the white woman who's a white woman who has black children and raises them you know, in a beautiful and conscious way? I mean, those people exist. Exactly. And so that, I think, is also part of you know, mm -hmm. what are all the bodies in the room and how are they in the room and what does it mean uh, to, to um, be able simply to say, I am a white person. Exactly. I mean, if we start talking about white people, we'll understand that there are actually white mothers of black children who are going through the same kind of distress mm -hmm. around having black sons out mm -hmm. in a militarized police zone. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, I, but we can't get there. We can't get to her if we're not looking at white bodies and thinking about constructions of whiteness. It's okay to be uncomfortable. This idea that white people cannot be uncomfortable, you know, that that means that they're under attack. It doesn't mean you're under attack. It means you're uncomfortable. That's all it means. If we're not used to talking about race, everybody's going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. and, and you won't die from it. And you're not going to die from it. Yeah. yeah. So Elizabeth, you know, you're, I'm thinking about one set of poems in particular in, in Crave Radiance, mm -hmm. uh, and I forget which prior book it had come from, but it's a series of poems about uh, uh, the Amistad. Yes, from um, American Sublime. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, will you just describe a bit what that series of poems is and why you chose to write it and, and the way you chose to write it? Because it, it, um, in different ways, it illuminates parts of what you both have been saying here. Well, I, I wanted to, um, living as I did for many years in New Haven, Connecticut, um, I uh, thought about the Amistad story, the Amistad captives. You know, when my first child was a baby, we'd walk across the green and I would want to know, I would look and see that's where they were held in the jail. This is where they came out for exercise. You know, I'm always trying to think, and I think for you poets, the exercise of thinking about what happened on the ground on which I walk. Right? What happened here? What happened here? Do we know what happened here? And I think that that can always be a very, very rich uh, source of work. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, I found that, that, that the tale that we know of this mutiny of these illegally transported Africans, who everyone calls slaves, and they were never slaves, mm -hmm. um, though they were, people were attempting to bring them into slavery, the rebellion of Sankey, who we know about, um, that, that that story um, hadn't been, and I'm going to just get, I'm going to read one little tiny snippet. Mm -hmm. Absence. In the absence of women on board, when the ship reached the point where no land mass was visible in any direction, and the funk had begun to accrue. Human funk, spirit funk, soul funk, who commenced the moaning? Who first hummed that deep sound from empty bowels, roiling stomachs from back of the frantically thumping heart? In the absence of women, of mothers, who found the note that would soon be called blue, the first blue note, from one bowel, one throat, joined by dark others in gnarled harmony? Before the head rag, the cast iron skillet, new blue awaited on the other shore, invisible as yet unhummed. Who knew what note to hit or how? In the middle of the ocean, in the absence of women, there is no deeper deep, no bluer blue. Uh, so I'm not sure if that's why you were asking, but I mean, I think that also in thinking about, um, and this goes back to resilience and survival and the art forms and cultural forms that have carried people forward. And, you know, that was what we saw invoked when the president sang Amazing Grace and lifted us up. It was not even so much about that song per se, it was about turning to the depths of communal song as a way not of saying everything's going to be all right, because he didn't, but rather of saying this is how we come together and, and try to get over, you know, to quote uh, another gospel song, to get over um, to what is inevitably the next challenge ahead, but collectively in collective voice. And this is what is so powerful about <clears throat> the poems of, of both of our panelists, is that they illuminate that 
possibility without, again, it being too neat or tidy or meant to make anybody feel like, you know, great at the end of the show. Um, and Claudia, I don't know if there's a, a particular poem you wanted to read from or, or, or share uh, today, but I think, you know, so much of what is memorable when you've read Citizen a few times, as, as I have, it is hypnotically written. Different moments, different places, even different stories in the memory begin to merge, right? Uh, but you do root things in place. You do root things in that asphalt parking lot um, where the body was run over. I don't know if there's anything in particular from the book that you'd like to read that speaks to this. So a poem of place. Um, the new therapist specializes in trauma counseling. You have only ever spoken on the phone. Her house has a side gate that leads to a back entrance she uses for patients. You walk down a path bordered on both sides with deer grass and rosemary to the gate, which turns out to be locked. At the front door, the bell is a small round disc that you press firmly. When the door finally opens, the woman standing there yells at the top of her lungs, get away from my house, what are you doing in my yard? It's as if a wounded Doberman pincher or a German shepherd has gained the power of speech. And though you back up a few steps, you manage to tell her you have an appointment. You have an appointment. She spits back. Then she pauses. Everything pauses. Oh, she says, followed by, oh, yes, that's right. I'm sorry. I am so, so sorry. One of the things I wanted to do was make the book a community document. And so I asked people to tell me stories where they were interacting with a colleague, a friend, um, or they were doing something very ordinary. Um, and then suddenly, racism stepped in and threw both parties out. And then the dance of you know, potential recognition had to, had to be in play. In that piece I just read, the woman who told me that is um, a professor in Northern California. And um, I said to her, so after you left, what did you, you know, what happened? And she said, well, I went home and I wept. And I said, and then what happened? And then she said, well, I wrote a letter to the therapist saying I couldn't come back. And I said, but you made another appointment? She said, yeah, because you do the next thing. As so many of the arts experiences at Ideas Festival often do, this will stay with you for a lot longer than you think. And I invite you to carry it and spread it with others. This conversation today is a breathing document. And we have to just keep on breathing it together um, and telling a new story together. So thank you so much. Please join me in thanking our poet. Thank you. Elizabeth Alexander's poem about hope, beauty, change, and possibility that's always within reach. It's called Praise Song for the Day and was read at the 2009 presidential inauguration. Here, she's on stage at the Ideas Festival. Each day we go about our business, walking past each other, 
catching each other's eyes or not, about to speak or speaking. All about us is noise. All about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, each one of our ancestors on our tongues. Someone is stitching up a hem, darning a hole in a uniform, patching a tire, repairing the things in need of repair. Someone is trying to make music somewhere, with a pair of wooden spoons on an oil drum, with cello, boombox, harmonica, voice. A woman and her son wait for the bus. A farmer considers the changing sky. A teacher says, take out your pencils, begin. We encounter each other in words, words spiny or smooth, whispered or declaimed, words to consider, reconsider. We cross dirt roads and highways that mark the will of someone and then others who said, I need to see what's on the other side. I know there's something better down the road. We need to find a place where we are safe. We walk into that which we cannot yet see. Say it plain that many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton and the lettuce, built brick by brick the glittering edifices they would soon keep clean and work inside of. Praise song for struggle, praise song for the day. Praise song for every hand-lettered sign, the figuring it out at kitchen tables. Some live by love thy neighbor as thyself, others by first do no harm or take no more than you need. What if the mightiest word was love? Love beyond marital, filial, filial national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. Love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, anything can be made, any sentence begun. On the brink, on the brim, on the cusp. Praise song for walking forward in that light. Thank you. That was poet Elizabeth Alexander reading Praise Song for the Day at the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival. Learn more about Aspen Words at aspenwords.org. Discover more about the festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. Thank you.